To start with, I'm a naturalist. I study animals and I study nature and I study plants. And I study how they all interact together. And I've been doing that for about the last 25, 30 years. And in the opportunity I've had, I've been able to see animals in the wild in their natural habitats. And that's what really gets me excited. Being able to be out in nature, not read about them in a book, not see them on a video screen, but actually be out there and study them in the field. And so that's what I've been doing most of the year, most of the time for the last 20 plus years. And so today what we're gonna be doing is brand new. I've never done it here at Advent Hope and I've just developed it over the last uh, year or so. And that is focusing on aspects of nature really taking a sharp look at some of the really interesting parts of nature and the animal groups and plant groups that make up it, the, uh, the natural world, and see what it tells us about creation and evolution, about our responsibility as Christians to the natural world, and how we relate to God. And so what we're going to be doing today is a little bit different than what I normally do, because normally I do very long programs on one topic. And you'll, I can go quite long. Some of you who have heard my meetings can testify to that. Um, today we're going to be doing short stories. We're going to be doing actually little focuses on one group of animals and then another group of animals to, to see what they all can tell us, each one a little bit different. But they'll all add up to a long program, so you're not getting away early. So if you're uh, hoping for that, you're going to be disappointed. We'll still be going long here this morning. But anyway, we're going to be looking at some of the really exciting aspects of nature to see what they can show us. I'm wondering, could it be possible to turn the lights out at all, um, dim them at least, because it's a little bit bright in here for, this, for the screen. But we're going to start with design and nature, a bit of an introduction to what we're going to be doing here this morning. When we look at the natural world, what do we see? Does everything look the same, behave the same, and live in the same way? Or do we see an infinite, an infinite variety of shapes, sizes, colors, and behavior? Life is extremely diverse. Life is extremely complex. What does that tell us? Imagine finding a pocket watch, sitting upon a beach, ticking away, telling the time of day. Where did it come from? Did the ocean waves combine from the coral, sand, pebbles, and seaweed to form the watch? Or did a human design and build the watch? When we look at Mount Rushmore, do we assume that long years of weathering and erosion created a pattern in the rocks that coincidentally look like the faces of U.S. presidents? Or do we know, even without being told, that the faces were carved by artists? What about a stained glass window? Are we glad that the glass accidentally formed into that beautiful pattern that we can enjoy? That, what, uh, or are we glad that someone had the artistic skill required to make that beautiful pattern that we admire? But what about living organisms, plants, animals, every living cell? Evolution tells us that all design we see in nature is due to chance. Random chance is responsible for all the complexity and all the diversity that we see in nature. Does this make any sense? There is no intelligence in the universe capable of designing life, so it all just happened to form out of chaos, luck, and natural processes. So when we see what looks like design, this is merely the appearance of design, not actual design. Is this logical? What do the animals and plants have to teach us? Do they give us evidence for random chance or a master designer? A blind watchmaker or a intelligent creator? Scientists can tell the difference between chance and design when they observe systems that are both complex and specific. 
If a system is ordered and specific, it rules out the likelihood that randomness is the cause. However, since anyone can use common sense and experience to determine whether or not watches, sculptures, and windows are made by chance or design, then why can't we use that same common sense and experience to determine whether or not the living organisms of our world are due to chance or design? We will now look at a few examples. For many years, physicists told us that bumblebees could not fly because of the shape of their body and their wings. And yet, Bumblebees continue to buzz merrily around flower meadows without listening to the physicists. Discus fish secrete an edible mucus all, all across their entire body for their babies to eat, letting them nibble it off the sides of their bodies. A rhino's head is filled with specialized smelling equipment that lets them see with smell. Plants breathe through microscopic pores that cover their leaves. Now, in those species that live in dry habitats keep their pores shut as much as possible to save water. Those that live in wet habitats can afford to keep them open all the time. How do unthinking plants know the difference? Bird feathers are interlocking lattices of tiny hooks that give them incredibly strong, tight surfaces while staying so lightweight that the birds are able to fly. Other feathers serve different functions, and each has its own unique and useful features. Spiders spin a liquid from their abdomen that hardens when exposed to oxygen, forming silk. Spiders can weave silk into egg cases, safety lines, and the most ingenious traps found in nature. Sea turtles ready to lay eggs have the navigational ability to find the exact beach that they were laid on sometimes decades ago when they last saw it as a tiny hatchling. Many salamanders have no lungs, instead breathing through their moist and porous skin. Cuttlefish communicate using patterns of light and color on their skin. They have an entire visual language of shifting colors and strobe pulses, the most sophisticated visual language ever studied. We will be looking at many such examples over the course of today's meetings. But for now, we'll uh, look at two clear examples of design in nature. The first example is bat sonar. Echolocation. Bat species make up a quarter of all mammals. Many are tropical, active during the day, and use their excellent vision to navigate. But others are active during the night, especially in those in temperate areas, and these rely on echolocation to navigate. They send out high-frequency sound bursts, directing them with elaborate facial shapes. These sound pulses above the level of our hearing are so loud that the bat's delicate hearing would be damaged if they didn't have special protection. Bats have a valve plug in each ear that they shut off their hearing as they send out their sound pulses. They immediately open up those valves in order to be able to hear the returning echoes that they have already sent out. Bats can turn on and off their hearing like this up to 200 times per second. They use their sound echoes to construct a mental map of their immediate surroundings. All bats can see very well, but their echolocation allows fantastic feats of navigation that vision never could. They can detect objects as thin as a human hair. 
They fly at speeds of up to 40 miles per hour, even in total darkness, so caves become perfect roosts. In a cave system in Borneo, millions of bats share roosting and flying space. They avoid crashing into each other or interfering with each other's sonar, despite the fact that there are 12 different species, each with their own calls and frequency levels. Evolution provides no factual evidence as to how a system so unbelievably complicated could ever have evolved slowly over millions of years. A second example is the transformation of butterflies and moths from larva caterpillars to adults. They enter a hard chrysalis of, or silk cocoon and then melt into a formless liquid as their entire body breaks down to a soup from which new cell structures will form the adult body. What is in control of this transformation? There is no controlling brain as the caterpillar's brain has turned to liquid soup along with the rest of their body. The adult that emerges is utterly different from the larva that went into the transformation. The body, mouth, eyes, digestive system, and feet are totally changed. If we didn't observe the change, we would never guess it is the same species. Only God's providence could have set up such a delicate and complex transformation. It is truly a miracle of design. Do nature's examples indicate random chance mimicking design, or do we see actual design? God has left his handiwork on display for us to study. If we ignore the clear evidence of intelligent design, we will try to explain what we see as blind luck. Creation really is the best scientific explanation of the complexity and diversity of life. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. If they, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee, if I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So that's our introduction to get us going today as we now begin to focus in on some of the animal groups that make up our world. And we're going to start out with everybody's favorite, the mammals, because this is a group that we all relate to. But when many people use the term animal, they, what they really mean are the mammals. Some of us even act as if they are the only animals that exist. We often think we know mammals really well, but there is as much diversity and complexity among them that they, have, that they still have many surprises in store for us. Mammals might well be the most diverse animal group, and they are certainly the most mentally complex. They live in every habitat and climate, from baking deserts to frozen wastes, from mountaintops to the depths of the ocean. They are built to eat virtually every type of food. Many dominate the ecosystems in which they live, at least on the large scale that we are familiar with. We relate to our fellow mammals better than any other group of animals. They are like us in many ways. Many raise their young in extended childhoods. Some are social, living in cooperative groups of hundreds to millions. Some are isolationists that shun others of their kind except to reproduce. Some are not terribly bright, but others are so inventive that their intelligence approaches so closely to our own that it is a mystery. The feelings displayed by mammals match our own in many ways. When God designed them, he made huge variations to distinguish the various groups. 
Ocean dwellers like seals, whales, and dolphins rarely, if ever, leave the water. They are built to survive cold water and great pressures. Horses, antelopes, and bovines often multiply into great herds that travel the grasslands and form the core of many ecosystems. Deer, rhinos, tapirs, and camels are specialized vegetarians as well. All of these grazers and browsers have specialized teeth and stomachs that let them eat tough grass and leaves. Rabbits, pikas, and hyrax are the small-scale munchers quietly nibbling on the undergrowth. Rodents do the same on an even smaller scale, reproducing so incredibly that they are the heart of the food web. Many predators of every form rely upon rodents for most of their food. Many are full-time predators. The canine family includes foxes, wolves, as well as domestic dogs. Often hunting in groups, they are able to bring down prey much larger than themselves. Felines compose both wild and domestic cats. These elegant and graceful creatures are mostly solitary, hunting by stealth, speed, or strength. Hyenas have traits of both cats and dogs, making them a unique group. Smaller predators include the civets and mongooses, ringtails and coatis. One of the most diverse families are the weasels, otters, fishers, martens, wolverines, tayras, minks, and weasels all look and act quite distinct from each other, but they are all clever and efficient hunters. The tiniest of all are the insectivores, shrews and moles scurrying through the leaves and soil in pursuit of worms and insects. Specialized ant and termite feeders, including anteaters, armadillos, pangolins, and aardvarks, licking up their food with extra long tongues. Bats comprise the second largest family after rodents. They fly through the deserts, jungles, and woodlands of the world, eating fruit or nectar or insects. A minimal three tropical American species drink blood, making them far more famous than their actual impact deserves. Some even snatch fish in pitch darkness, detecting telltale ripples with their echolocation. The primates are found in tropical habitats around the world. Lemurs, monkeys, baboons, and apes all have complex intelligence and behavior. Many live in large groups that have intricate social relations. Many use tools, engage in politics, or cooperate in food gathering. Australia is gifted with their own type of mammal, the marsupials and the monotremes. They have strange ways of giving birth unlike any others. Echidnas and platypus lay eggs, while the rest have an external pouch where their babies develop. There are all types of marsupials, from placid grazing wombats to hop-leaping kangaroos to tree-climbing koalas, possums, and sugar gliders. Pigs, warthogs, and peccaries feed on anything they can root out of the ground, usually traveling in large family groups. So we've seen how many forms and lifestyles mammals take, even without looking at many specialists quite unlike the rest, like the fusa, sloths, or manatees. In fact, mammals display more variety among fewer species than any other animal group. 
God decided to make them exceptionally diverse, giving them incredible physical tools and mental behaviors. We relate to mammals because we are one. They show intelligence and, mo and emotions that we understand, since we share many common experiences. Since humans didn't evolve from a common prehistoric ancestors, our similarities must be due to another reason. The answer is that God made an orderly system of divine dominion over humanity and humanity's dominion over nature. His plan of responsible dominion is revealed by his love to us. Know ye that Jehovah, he is God. It is he that hath made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God made mammals to be cared for by humans as a living example of his care for us. The opposite is also true. Our dominion of the animals should follow the divine pattern with us as compassionate caretakers of creation. Unfortunately, humans have not lived up to their high calling. We have enslaved mammals more thoroughly than any other animal group. We eat them by the millions. We hunt them relentlessly. We rip the skins off their bodies, enslave them for entertainment, and experiment on them in laboratories. In fact, other than birds and fish, no animal group is as thoroughly exploited and ruthlessly tormented than mammals. This is all the worse since they are so close to us in so many ways with their emotions and physical sensitivity. God's example of endless love and compassion is our guide to what he expects from us toward his wonderful creation entrusted to us. Satan's example of disregard and cruelty to all God has made should be rejected without hesitation. Once we do so, the casual eating of sentient beings, shooting them for fun, or exploiting their bodies both dead and alive for selfish gain, will cease to be part of the faithful followers of Christ. Mammals provide us with one more thing, love. Scientific studies have demonstrated repeatedly that pets give their caretakers many health benefits. People with well-treated dogs, cats, and rabbits have lower stress levels, better immune systems, and happier dispositions. Birds can do this as well, but mammals are especially well-suited to this for us to relate to them, since they share so many of our emotions and personalities. God gave us the mammals to be our allies and friends. Our treatment of these wonderful creations will, re will reveal how well we live up to the Creator's designs for both us and for them. And now we're going to turn from the animals to the plant world, because the plant world can tell us just as much about God's creation as the animal world. When we think about flowers, we often picture those grown for abstract beauty or for to be given as tokens of affection or to decorate our homes and churches. But why do flowers exist? Why did God create them? Plants occur everywhere that life can survive. Animals could not exist without plants forming the basis of the food chain. Plants also create oxygen and consume carbon dioxide, making animal life possible. 80% of the world's plants have flowers. They vary from large, colorful, and showy to others so tiny that we rarely notice them. 
So flowers must be important since so many plants have them. The primary reason for the existence of flowers is reproduction. Flowers contain the germ of new life. Each flower produces microscopic pollen by the millions to join with the waiting cells in other flowers to form new life. Pollen is so unique to each plant that it becomes like a key that will only unlock its own species. This prevents the blending of unrelated plants because flowers will ignore pollen that doesn't match their own species. Flowers usually need help to spread their pollen to other flowers. Most grass pollen is spread by the wind, so their flowers are small and don't attract animal helpers. But most flowers rely on insect partners. God created insects to work with flowers in a beneficial system of mutual aid. These flowers produce nectar, a sugary liquid that rewards insect vi visitors. When the bees, wasps, and true bugs smell the sweet fragrance of the nectar and land, they are covered by pollen that will then be spread to the next flower that the insect lands upon. In this way, the insects get their food and the plants are fertilized. Since certain insects can see ultraviolet and infrared light, many flowers have colors and patterns that are only visible in that spectrum. This helps guide insects to the nectar. Some flowers will only give up their pollen to bees that can release it by vibrating their wings at specific frequencies. Hitting the right note triggers a cascade of pollen onto the bee. Some flowers have elaborate shapes that allow only one species of insect to access the nectar. Other flowers are designed for unusual partners. Some smell like dead meat and attract flies and beetles looking for carrion. These flowers don't produce nectar, since these insects won't drink any. But many birds pollinate flowers, and they drink lots of nectar. Since birds have a poor sense of smell, flowers designed for them don't use fragrance, but rely bright on brightly colored petals to attract them. Hummingbirds and sunbirds are totally dependent upon flower nectar for their food. Some flowers partner with mammals, since color is not the best way to draw mammals, a strong musty or yeasty smell is used instead. These that rely on rodents are placed low on the plant, face the ground, and are dull colored. Those that rely on bats open at night and are large and white, since this helps bats see them in the dark. Perhaps the strangest pollinators of all are the geckos that crawl from flower to flower, transferring pollen on their chin and legs. Once pollination is successful, seeds will form where the flowers were. Sometimes the seeds are small and dry, dispersing on their own by the wind or by hitching a ride on animals. Some plants are designed to propel their seeds as far as they can by using catapults, cannons, and springs. But many seeds are covered by a fleshy pulp that tempts animals to spread the seeds by eating them. These are berries and fruit, many of which are crucial to our own food supply. Without flowers, there would be no fruit. So we again see how God's designs provide for all. What about trees? Trees are just long-lived plants, and many have flowers as well. Trees are divided into two major categories. The first are called conifers. These have small or narrow needles that retain moisture and so are well-suited to dry and cold habitats. 
The small surface area of their leaves means that they only produce a small amount of energy with the limited chlorophyll in them. Most retain their needles for years and drop only a few at a time as they are replenished. High mountains, cold northern latitudes, and deserts are dominated by this type of tree. The second tree group are called deciduous. These have flat, thin leaves and are well-suited to wet and hot habitats. The large surface areas of their leaves means that they produce large amounts of energy, but also means that they lose water constantly. Most lose their leaves every winter and regrow a new set in the spring. Jungles, warm temperate latitudes, and riversides are dominated by this type of tree. Conifers have no flowers, but they do produce pollen in vast quantities and let it fly on the wind. When pollen succeeds in finding a fellow tree, seeds form in a hard protective case called a cone, which vary greatly in design. In contrast, deciduous trees all have flowers. Some are very inconspicuous, like the tiny ones on oaks. These again rely upon wind to disperse their pollen. But the rest have showy flowers, and some of the largest and most distinctive flowers are found on trees. So flowers are practical structures designed to enable plants to survive. But just because God made flowers useful doesn't mean they aren't beautiful as well. Flowers come in all sizes and colors and shapes. Many smell wonderful to our noses, providing us both visual and olfactory pleasure. But when sin entered the world, all life was damaged and changed. Thorns were added to plants for defense. Some plants now have toxic sap or thick latex. Plants were changed to live in new habitats. Deserts are filled with cacti, which have to be tough, water-hoarding, thorny fortresses. Wetlands have plants built for total immersion, able to grow underwater and flower on the surface. Prairies swept often by fire have grasses with roots so deep that they can quickly regrow new shoots. Plants of high mountains in the Arctic have insulated hairy leaves and tiny flowers low to the ground to avoid the bitter wind. Some alpine plants slowly grow for 25 years before their first flower emerges and blooms. Each species is specialized to meet its own conditions, giving the world an incredible diversity and complexity. Flowers provide beauty and elegance everywhere they are found. God made flowers to give us delight and while providing for the continuation of the plants. God cares for all of his creation. When we see the way plants and animals are dependent upon each other, we realize how dependent we are upon God's care and the intricate ecosystems that he has made. They are the support systems that make all life, including our own, possible. If destroyed or broken by our carelessness, all of us suffer lasting harm. Jesus told us to consider the flowers. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Flowers are the graceful jewels that enrich nature while serving a useful function. Each time we gaze upon one of God's beautiful flowers, we can be assured that we are a part of his master plan. His is a beautiful plan of which he promises to provide for all of our needs. Now we go back to the animal world, and this time we're going to look at the fish 
because the fish are far more amazing than we realize. When people think about the animal world, they usually focus on cute furry mammals or brightly colored birds. Some people fancy unusual animals like reptiles or insects. But very few of us pay attention to the fish world. They live underwater where we have a hard time existing for long. Naturally, we assume fish to be unfeeling, dull animals that swim silently in a world forever alien to us. But what do we know of these aquatic specialists? The reality is that fish are incredibly well-designed creations of God showing his love of variety and diversity. Fish are amazingly diverse. There are more species of fish than all mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians combined. They are found from the deepest spots ever studied in the oceans to the most remote freshwater streams. 75% of the planet is covered by water, and fish are the dominant animal of the water. So let us examine fish to see what special gifts God has given them. Most fish have a bony skeleton, the nervous system, like all other vertebrate animals, the mammals, birds, amphibians, and reptiles. The sharks and rays have no bones at all, but God gave them a structure of hardened cartilage instead. All fish breathe using gills. The gills are, on a fish are a sophisticated system that transfers oxygen from the water directly into the fish's bloodstream. Most fish have teeth varied for many uses and types of food. Despite their reputation, piranha use their sharp teeth to mostly eat fallen fruit. Sharks constantly replenish their worn teeth, with some shark species going through 24,000 teeth in a decade. Instead of arms and legs, fish have flexible fins in a great variety of forms. The so fish are perfectly designed for an underwater life, no matter where they may live. Unusual fish specialists are marvels of God's design. Some fish lead solitary lives, rarely encountering their own kind, while others live in schools that can number billions. Skates and rays shuffle through sandy areas with their mouth placed underneath to gather food directly from the seafloor. But they have separate holes above in order to allow clean, sand-free water to reach their gills. Batfish walk slowly over seabeds using their stiff lower fins instead of legs. Many fish must navigate dark or muddy habitats. Blind cavefish don't even have eyes but forever swim through total blackness. Elephant fish generate electricity to help find their way through African streams. They poke their long tube sensors into gravel beds to locate hidden food. Due to the curse of sin, God provided many fish with sophisticated abilities that help them survive today. Eels generate powerful currents of electricity with several electric organs filling 80% of their body. In this way, they are able to defend themselves as well as stun any prey that comes within range. Archerfish spit water into overhanging branches to knock crawling insects down to the water where they can be eaten. God has given them the ability to adjust their aim to compensate for the water refraction that would otherwise make them miss their target. Many fish are masters of camouflage. 
Frogfish hold motionless against a background that matches their color, making them invisible to all but the most careful scrutiny. Rockfish and scorpionfish pretend to be a motionless weed-covered rock, never moving unless they must. Pipefish mimic swaying seaweed, turning head downward to better match plant growths. Razorfish form coordinated schools that move and shift with every movement of the water currents. Some of the strangest are the seahorses, delicate, upright fish that gently glide through the seaweed and coral jungles. They are faithful mates, dutiful parents, and come in a wide variety of colors, sizes, and camouflaged shapes. Truly, God's designs are a wonder to behold. But perhaps the best display of the intricate gifts that God has bestowed upon fish is found in the unusual senses that they have. All fish have a row of tiny pores running along each side of their body called the lateral line. Now, this delicate sensory organ is more important to fish than vision, as it allows them to feel every movement of the water around them. Swimming properly, avoiding obstacles, and schooling with thousands of other fish are almost impossible without the lateral line. Only fish have been given this incredible way of instantaneously sensing and reacting to the constantly changing conditions of turbulent and crowded water habitats. This lateral line is basic to all fish, but many other abilities are available as well. Fish have an acute sense of smell. Sharks use smell as their main tool to locate their food across vast distances. Fish have good hearing and often communicate with sounds that we can only hear with special equipment. This surprised the researchers who discovered this form of communication, since fish were assumed to be always silent. Sturgeons and catfish have chemoreceptors that detect chemicals in the water, letting them feed, leading them toward food or away from danger. But the most unusual gift is displayed by catfish, who have taste buds covering their whiskers, face, fins, and body. They can taste their food by rubbing any part of their body against it. In this way, they can decide if it is good to eat before they ever put anything into their mouth. For this incredible ability, catfish have been called living tongues. God seems to love to make animals who are very different from our own experiences. Fish all have a keen sense of touch, especially around the head and lips. They use their mouth to examine their surroundings because they have no hands or paws. Fish have a sophisticated nervous system with a spinal cord and nerves that reach throughout their bodies. All of this brings us to the very difficult question of whether fish can feel pain. For many years, scientists were unable to determine whether or not fish could experience physical pain. But modern tests have gone a long way to prove that fish do have pain receptors just like other vertebrate animals. In experiments, fish react to pain in ways like other animals react to pain. They remember pain-producing devices and try to avoid them. All of this has led many caring people to reject sport fishing as a cruel indulgence of our recreational whims. If we spent more time studying fish without harming them, we might realize that God has made them truly special in their own way. Cruelty for fun is never God's way. 
As we explore the exotic and amazing world of God's aquatic kingdom, we find fish to be as sophisticated and well-developed as any other part of creation. Fish are far from being primitive relics of early evolutionary history. The diversity of nature is nowhere better shown than in the complex behavior and physical gifts given to the entertaining world of fish. God's designs truly are extraordinary. Now to finish up this morning, we're going to get a little bit more practical because now we're going to look at God's plan for nature. What does this mean to us? When we look at the world around us, what do we see? Cities and asphalt, buildings and industry. What about the parts of the world unaltered by man? Deserts and forests, mountains and oceans. The world is filled with plants and animals that are almost infinite in their variety and their design. Are they beyond our concern, removed from our field of interest? Or are they intertwined with our lives in ways that we have yet to fully understand? God created this world and gave it to us, so aren't we free to use it as we choose? But God also gave us free choice, and that means that our actions have consequences. Our choices affect ourselves, those around us, and the world in which we live. Are we content that we are treating the world responsibly, or have we mismanaged our duty? In the beginning, God made the earth, the plants, the animals, and the humans. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The world is a vastly complex interaction of plants and animals and natural processes. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So since God cares for his works, this must mean that he is interested in the well-being of all life. After the flood, God established a covenant with his creation. I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl and of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. In heaven, God's will involved no death, destruction, suffering, or pain. How close are we to that ideal here on earth? For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That is the reality of a world cursed by sin. Often we believe that pain and death is only due to Adam's sin, and that there is nothing that we can do about it. But whom does God condemn for the ruin and decay of the land and the wildlife? Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land, therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish, with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. We see this happening all around us. The land and water are poisoned and cluttered with human debris. Thousands of animal species are either endangered or already extinct. The oceans are at a critical point of overfishing and pollution. Entire ecosystems are failing, both on land and in the sea. And God did not blame the heathen for these disasters. He held his chosen people accountable due to their unfaithfulness and rebellion. Even if we damage this world beyond repair, 
What does that matter in the long run? Won't God be coming soon to destroy this world and create a new one in its place? What difference can it make what we do now? God's response to those who destroy the earth is described vividly in Revelation. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. If we give a complicated machine to a caretaker and, or to make use of while we are on a long trip, do we expect them to be careful with it? If we return to find it damaged and broken, will we reward the caretaker for his carelessness or greed? This is the true meaning of dominion and stewardship, that we do our best to care for what has been entrusted to us. So we need to be sure that our personal actions are not destroying the earth. This can take many forms, such as not polluting, not wasting resources, not destroying those plants that maintain the continued health of entire ecosystems. What we eat, what we wear, how we entertain ourselves, all have impacts both in our backyard as well as on the other side of the world. But the greatest impact we have on God's creation is by our food choices. Since most people now have access to countless plant foods, meat eating is rarely needed for survival. Our diet is the single greatest abuse of animals on the planet. As factory farming is so oppressive and cruel as to defy description. The waste of resources to produce a few pounds of meat could feed far more humans if not processed through animals first. We could eliminate human starvation on the planet by abolishing the meat industry and feeding the crops that we grow to people instead of to farmed animals. The pollution caused by the raising, housing, and transportation of farmed animals is the single greatest contributor to toxic pollutants in our air, water, and land. And of course, the cruelty and death inflicted upon the individual animals themselves makes meat-eating truly a practice to be shunned. As many people are becoming vegetarians and vegans, they are finding their own health improving. Meat is so contaminated by the confinement and drugs used in the factory farming industry that clean meat really doesn't exist anymore. Animals are so diseased and polluted that eating them has become an unwise indulgence. And let's not forget the dairy and the egg industries, as they are closely married to the meat industry and pollute the landscape just as badly. Looking at the cruelty, death, waste of resources, contamination of our bodies, and indirect results of the meat and dairy industries, we see that taking the step of not eating animals or dairy products is the single greatest way that we can fulfill our duty as stewards of the earth. We live in a world corrupted by sin, but that does not mean that we can destroy the world and its inhabitants to satisfy our selfishness and greed. We are the stewards and caretakers of God's created works, 
And he will hold us accountable for how we treat his possessions. Our goal is the peaceable kingdom in which all life will live in harmony. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. All of us have the wonderful opportunity to follow God's better way of compassion and care. So that's been our look at some of the animal groups, shining a spotlight on some ideas and groups of animals. We are just getting started, though. We're going to be continuing all afternoon to look at more animals and look at more plants and see what they have to show us. And by the end of the day, anybody who will attend will get college credit. <laughs> Not really. But you will actually learn enough to know half of the stuff that will be taught in the classes on animals and plants. We're going to be looking at some of the strangest plants in nature. We're going to be looking at carnivorous plants, plants eating animals. What is up with that? We're going to be looking at groups of animals like reptiles and birds. We're going to be looking at some of the smallest creatures in nature, but the ones that are in fact the most important. We're going to be looking at how this impacts our faith as Christians. We believe in creation, but sometimes we don't know the science that backs it up. And that's what we're going to be continuing to focus on, to see what the creation science can tell us about ourselves and about our faith and about the world that we live in. And at the end of the day, we're going to be talking about extinct animals, including the dinosaurs. What do they have to teach us? Where did they come from? You've probably been to some, some programs on dinosaurs and they talk about dinosaurs for five minutes and say, we don't know where they came from. I won't be telling you that. I will give you my honest opinion of the evidence that's available and see what they have to teach us. So we're going to be looking at all of those animals this afternoon and some of the practical impacts upon us in our society. I hope you can join us. It will be starting at 4 o'clock and it will be going till sundown. If you're interested in what you have seen here today, all of what we are doing today are on DVDs and they will be available after sundown. They're also available from our website. So if you're wanting this to share or to review, this is something that we have turned into a resource as well. We hope that this morning has been educational and enjoyable as we look at the animal creation. And before 40 people come up and ask me afterward, yes, we took the pictures. All of the pictures you have seen today were taken by us, mostly by my wife. She is the photographer, and she has taken all the pictures you have seen today, except for just you know two or three pictures in there that weren't hers, but otherwise they're all hers. And most of you don't know her, but she was a regular attendee at Advent Hope in the early 2000s before I rescued her from the LA smog. <laughs> and now she gets to travel and see animals in their natural habitat and take pictures of her, and she much prefers her life now than she did then. <laughs> but she did enjoy coming to Advent Hope and she does miss that to this day so that is one thing she enjoys coming back here but anyway that's what uh, the pictures source are and uh, because people are always wondering who takes your pictures this media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more if you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.